0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about suicide, and tonight we're going to be focusi- focusing on suicide among returning veterans, particularly from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, but also from earlier ones. My guest tonight is Peter McMullen. He goes by Pete. Pete is the Suicide Prevention Coordinator for the VA. He's a psychologist. He's been working at the VA for the past three years. His training and background is in family therapy, and he also worked here in Maine at Youth Alternatives before that for the past eight years. Pete, welcome to Safe Space.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: How big a problem is suicide among returning vets?
1: It's getting to be, in terms of a mental health issue, one of the bigger issues compared to medical issues going on for them. They can have medical injuries, but the mental health ones are actually becoming more of a forefront, uh, just in terms of the numbers, the percentages of those who are really asking for mental health help. It's actually quite growing.
0: And among those with mental health issues, how much is thoughts of suicide and or attempts at suicide? How, how, how big a problem are we thinking about, maybe in Maine or nationally?
1: It's, it's sort of the rates are climbing really quickly, and so that's why there's a lot of attention to it in terms of, um the rates have climbed maybe two or three fold before comparing it before the war versus after the war so some rates now are um quite high as compared to the general population
0: and can you give me when you say quite high are we talking like 10% of people who come back think about suicide or?
1: Uh, it's the way they kind of look at it in terms of rates would be um, based on a large groups. So out of 100,000 people of a certain age, how many would commit suicide? So that's how they kind of give those numbers. Um, basically, in the state of Maine, we have some information that helps us compare veterans versus non-veterans and their suicide rates. And so it can be something like if you're a veteran under the age of 45, it can be somewhere around um, 30 out of 100,000 versus the general population would be, say, 15 so it could be two to three times more.
0: I see what you're saying. So I want to ask you to help me get inside the mind of someone who's coming back oh. from fighting overseas. And so they've been looking forward to being home, probably just desperately. They're home. And what, what is it like to come home from an overseas conflict like this?
1: I kind of can t- tell you more or less about it in two different ways. Um, part of the team that assesses them on their third day back in uh, Maine. So when they first come back, we're assessing them for mental health issues right off the bat. And they're very happy to be home. So at that point, we're not expecting to see a lot of people saying, yes, I have all these issues. Um, It kind of can really come on more quickly, um, maybe two or three months later on, that they're having a hard time functioning. They are thought it would go much better, but it's not. They can't function in the general public. They start feeling like they don't belong here. Um, They start having very intense temper issues. Um, So there can be a whole range of uh, symptoms and behaviors that really stand out. Um, Some of them have a sense that um, they've had a lot of loss. They've had a lot of guilt about what happened over there. And they don't have a sense of being able to talk about it or connect to anybody here who's not been there. It's sort of a very different club. If you're not part of it, they really have a hard time communicating with you about it.
0: And is that partly because they feel like people can't bear to really know or they just like change the subject? They don't go there?
1: It's a sense that they may not understand the full intensity of it, of um, seeing someone really die next to you or uh, seeing what happens when a, um, a, a building gets blown up and what that's like after. Um, it's hard to train anybody for that who's 18 to 20 years old. Um, some of my clients have really talked about how they don't want their families to know because they'll, they're going to be judged, and they'll be judged like they're not human anymore. My, my son or daughter couldn't have done that. And so it makes it very, very hard for them to feel like they're accepted anywhere anymore.
0: I can imagine they may also struggle with self-judgment. I can't believe I did that or I was part of that.
1: Yeah, and they do and um it's very hard for them to get into that and when I'm working with them in terms of and the PTSD program it's a very careful process of how to help them slowly get toward enough trust with the therapist to really start getting into those specific things that have happened. Um, So
0: you mentioned the PTSD program. Maybe it's a good moment to explain. What is post-traumatic stress disorder?
1: It's a certain um, cluster of symptoms that are sort of a pattern to say that you've been through a trauma. After the trauma, um, you really are not functioning real well. And it can include really intense memories of what you've been through that you can't control. You can't shut that off. You can't shake it. Um, it can be that these memories really have an intense reaction to you. They can make your heart race. You can feel very uncomfortable. Um, You can um, have a desire to kind of avoid even thinking about anything that's going to make you think of that. So you stop watching the news because you can't deal with that because you blow up every time you kind of do that. They can't sleep. They have severe nightmares, really bad nightmares. Many of my clients have told me they've gone up in the middle of the night and had to change the sheets because they're just sweating profusely with it. So um, And they don't know why this is happening. They feel like they're the only ones going through it. And yet I tell them that it's like cookie cutter. It's so similar to all my other clients in terms of the patterns that they're having. Um,
0: so they feel ashamed and isolated with it. Like,
1: they do. Um, their families may or may not understand. Um, they, they don't understand why you just can't shake it off. And, you know, you're back in the U.S. having McDonald's, you know, feel nice. And they really are trying, but they, they don't understand. So divorce rates, separation issues are really also an issue for them.
0: So they come home, and their families just don't recognize who they are anymore. They feel like this person has changed,
1: and yes, and they don't really want to show that side of them. They really want to be like who they were before, but it's been too much since in terms of what they've been through. And then when they get suicidal, um, it's very hard because that really uh, is very different than who they were and who they trained to be when they're in the military.
0: I imagine I mean, uh, my sense is that the the young the young adults who are heading off are very idealistic. Motivated by honor and principle and service to their country, and so to come back, you know, struggling with you know outbursts of temper and overwhelming fear—that's not sort of who they who they feel themselves to have been.
1: No, and Maine is one of the states that has a very high rate of um, people going into enlistment in terms of enlisting in the military. Um, So there's a lot of family tradition of serving for our country in this state. It's higher than other states. So whole families can um, have this issue, but maybe the current guy who's, say, 20 years old or 22 might be the first person who's really been deployed to a war. And the father, grandfather, uncle may not have been. So it's a a different issue. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I was struck. You mentioned um, when you were saying difficulty functioning, you mentioned temper. And uh, certainly when I've been reading about it, I understand the sort of outbursts of anger are a really prominent part of this. And tell me about that.
1: Um, part of, at least what I'm finding in my experience is that in order to be a very good functioning soldier, you can't sort of sit back. You have to have a certain amount of aggression in order what you're dealing with in a war environment. And that helps you survive. That helps you take care of the people you serve with. Turning that off is very hard when they come back. So, um, they're around people who are not in the military, who are not disciplined. They can see the general public as sort of being, you people have no discipline. You know, you do um, sort of a half-baked job. If I did that in, my, in the military, you know, I'd have things happen to me. So they get frustrated. And, uh, they don't like somebody at the cash register who's just taking their time or being rude or not doing their job 110% like they used to. So there can be a lot of anger around their life. And um, many of my clients have, don't understand that if they were to go to a bar, have a few drinks, and then someone's being an idiot to them, that they have a lot of anger that can unleash on that person that's really building up and so I to help them understand that this could be potentially really dangerous for them and a lot of legal charges and be careful what you're doing with this stuff. And that's common at least among the clients I'm dealing with who have PTSD and who are suicidal.
0: That they that they under the influence of alcohol they may get a little aggressive in an unfortunate way.
1: Yes. To
0: put it mildly. It's mildly, yes. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space and I'm talking to Pete McMullen the suicide prevention coordinator for the VA, we're talking particularly about um, the young men and women who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan, what it's like when they come back, difficulties adjusting. Um, you know, I know that uh, addiction is another piece of all of this, and mm-hmm. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how much you see that, you know, use of substances, how much it, do people use that to try to numb out these memories, these nightmares? What are you seeing?
1: Um the general pattern that I'm seeing would be that alcohol is number one drug that's sort of used in the military. It's sort of integrated into it in terms of uh, just it's what people can do when you're um, back from deployment um, or those kind of things. So alcohol is more common. Um, it's a different pattern than, say, someone who's not in the military who's in their early 20s. There's a different pattern of drug use. If you've been in the military, you're less likely to use other kind of drugs, say uh, heroin, cocaine, uh, versus if you'd not been in the military, those could be more common. So it's interesting for me to deal with a lot of 20 something guys, um, who are dealing with alcohol as their main issue. Um, they use it to, yes, to go to sleep. They, they can't stop the, the memories and their tolerance is unbelievable. I have to educate some of them, the difference between really getting drunk and alcohol poisoning, um, because they feel like they need a huge amount of alcohol to really help them turn it off and go to sleep. Um,
0: so, they're, they're so their adrenaline is some, in some ways amped up so high that to quench it, it's, the amount of alcohol is very high amount. It's
1: that and tolerance. If they keep using alcohol repeatedly, they'll, a six-pack will barely show any symptoms. You barely could tell that they've had any alcohol because a six-pack is just their base. And they can go to 10, 12, 15 beers, um, 20 in a given night. So it can be that, that level that they need to use that to go to sleep and then have some sleep.
0: Right, and then the downside being, as you were mentioning before, that alcohol can also remove inhibitions and make it more likely for things to become violent, potentially. It's very interesting for me when you were saying that if aggression overseas in a situation of armed conflict is actually potentially life-saving... And it's very hard to let go of that when you come back here. And that makes sense for all of us as we grow up. The things that work for us, they are reinforced. We tend to do again and again.
1: Yes. The certain symptoms in PTSD uh, can be really uh, functional in a war environment, such as that one, um, being hypervigilant. Um, Having someone, uh, being hypervigilant, scanning your area all the time, looking for threats. They can do that here back in Maine. They know it's Maine. It's a little bit safe, but they don't feel safe. But that's required in order to survive in a war environment. So you just can't shut that off, especially if, say, you're a National Guard member and you may be asked to deploy again. You don't want to get dull. So it's very much of a challenge to say, relax, try to relax. You're back in the U.S.
0: I see. So for someone who might get deployed again, and, of course, what we hear is that people do get deployed again. That's, in fact, the norm, it it seems. Yes. So there's a feeling like I can't really let down my guard because I have to stay on. I have to go back out there.
1: Right, exactly. And it gets to be a challenge for them to even access care, to um, be concerned about labels that might happen for mental health. If we label them PTSD, what will that be like for their, their career and their future in the, in the National Guard?
0: So tell me more about that. Is that is the reality to that? Has the culture around that changed?
1: Um, I've been to, uh, luckily the VA and the Department of Defense have uh, joint conferences now where we're trying to connect the services, the services uh, given at the VA versus the DOD and what they're dealing with, the Department of Defense, the military. Um, the military high-end people, the general level, the Pentagon, they're aware that the culture needs to shift about this and have a more uh, supportive mind to the issue of suicide and suicide prevention. So at the very top, there's support for an openness about this. Trickling it down to every single National Guard and w- man and woman is really hard because, um, and again, even the command uh, staff that I've worked with here locally in Maine, they're very good. Um, they're aware that there are National Guard members who have mental health issues, and they're not. Their knee-jerk response is to not to dismiss them out of the National Guard, um, and I've seen that happen among the people I've um, I've been working with. The clients I've worked with those kind of things. There are times when someone can't be redeployed, but it's b- kind of blatantly obvious. It's sort of like very clear that this person is really gone to a point where it may not be ready. For, it may not be the right thing for them. So I've seen it that they're really trying, but getting that out of the culture of every single person in the National Guard and risk your financial future and your career, that's, that's not easy for them.
0: I mean, I can imagine even at a non-career advancement level, although that's obviously very relevant, you know, the culture of the military is macho culture, and asking for help, showing vulnerability, is, is, a, is a, in fact a very brave thing to do, I would suggest.
1: It but is. Um, and um, I have certain clients who uh, will not really agree to regular sessions. Uh, even though they're very suicidal and they have issues going on and they need the help, um, they feel that coming to me is a sign of weakness and that really goes against their core sense of who they are. So, okay, call me when you need to. I'll work at your pace. But call me before you lose your marriage, you lose your job, you get in jail. And so I work with them in terms of what pacing they want. And so, like, I know certain phone numbers. If, if someone's calling me, I know that I have to take this right now sort of thing. It's a few.
0: Right. I can imagine. So I want to shift now a little bit more to suicide in particular. Okay. Um, so you are a suicide prevention coordinator. Yes. Which is quite a title. How um, how how do you go about trying to prevent it? I mean, what, what are your tools?
1: There's certain mandates in terms of what the job's supposed to do. One is that I'm required to provide training and making sure that every staff member in the VA in Maine is trained in suicide prevention in terms of recognizing warning signs and those kind of things right down to the barber, the food servers, the volunteer drivers, everyone, there's 1,200 people. And so we have a system in place of kind of doing that. Um, So there's that one part of it, making sure everybody who works at the VA is aware of that. Um, I can also do outreach work, where I provide training outside the VA to any providers who sort of may ask for that. And through USM, I've been asked to do them uh, through uh, the main military uh, community outreach network, a network of mental health providers who want to work with the military. I'll provide training there. Um, The other thing is to just uh, flag people who are really at high risk. We can identify and help with the other mental health providers. These are the people who are probably at the highest risk that we can see, and we can actually put extra attention and emphasis on making sure that they get care that they need. So we're trying to do different things that way. Um, I will work with someone who may not be eligible for services through the VA right now because they're suicidal. And so I bridge – I can go beyond the basic tenant of, hey, sorry you're not enrolled right now. You can't come into the VA, so sorry. Whereas my job can go beyond that say, no, I'll work with you and help you get connected and deal with the issues that are the barriers.
0: That feels very important because certainly in my reading and preparing for this interview – I've read that, you know, the suicide prevention coordinator position in some ways was established because there were some very tragic cases of suicide where the person couldn't get help when they needed it. Yes, it
1: It was Joshua Omvig, and that was a a very publicized national case that was put in front of the Congress. um, And the family obviously had to deal with their son committing suicide and sort of um, turned that experience into making sure that that wasn't repeated um, elsewhere and really pushed the government to give the VA the funds and the um, the mandate to get really more involved in this. And since then, it's actually done quite a lot of work.
0: And how, so you've been doing this for three years. Yes. Um, yeah. How do you, do you feel hopeful about whether this is being able to make a difference?
1: On my level, yes. I mean, on my level with the clients, I see the things that we do. I feel like if the position wasn't there, it would be really hard for certain veterans to sort of deal with the system to get the care that they need, um, It's very hard for someone who's in their early 20s to admit that they need help. And the VA can be a big bureaucratic system to deal with. So I think me being involved as a uh, problem solver, helping someone kind of get in here, I can see that happening. Uh, I have to feel hopeful in terms of what we're doing, in terms of just getting into the mental health field. Uh, It's not just myself, but I think anybody who works in mental health feels that they can make a difference when someone's coming for them for help. That's what we all do this for.
0: Indeed. Surely you would not be doing it unless you felt hopeful. Yes. And so you yourself work with many very suicidal people. I do. And how is that for you?
1: Um, It's not boring. I have a certain (laughs) day. Um, I I have to be uh, fluid in what I'm doing during the day. Uh, So an issue today took up about two hours of my time for this one veteran who needed it. Yesterday was a a three-hour issue with another veteran um, in between my clients and those kind of things. I like the the kinetic energy in the job itself. Um, It goes fast. Um, I find that I can, I have good response from other um, service lines in the VA. If I need primary care docs or uh, the geriatric unit or other units or the pharmacy to do something extra for the veteran because of that, I can make that happen. And people are very responsive. So it's rewarding in that way.
0: I can imagine that sounds great. You know, I know there's something called vicarious PTSD, <laughs> vicarious traumatization where, you know, where you're hearing these horrible stories day in and day out. And do you find that you start to have nightmares?
1: Not nightmares about it. It's, it's more a matter a matter of uh, the stress for me is if someone's going through that and there really is something that's sort of um, making it harder for us to provide care to that person or he's just not wanting the help um, or, you know, he's just suffering out there and I really can't get him in. Those are the hardest things for me. Um, getting through the individual traumas, when some of my clients get to the point of discussing a specific trauma and getting through it and it's very rare for them to do that, it's really a very careful session. Usually I find that to be a very good experience for me to kind of get through. I don't feel like uh, I'm picking up on this or I'm absorbing this trauma for them. I find that I can really help them go through it. Uh, they're going to have a bad night after. Mm-hmm. And after the session's over, they're going to have a rough night. I warn them about it. But I really commend them for kind of going through that with me. And I usually find it to be a positive thing because I can have them look at it from a different perspective.
0: I can imagine it would be very moving, in fact. It can be. Yeah. So the thing that really kind of gets to you is if you can't reach someone, someone can't come in and get the help that you so wish you could give them. Mm -hmm. So they're suffering and you just
1: can't. Yep. And they just won't, for whatever reason, they won't follow through. They don't want to follow through. Um, they're not ready to, Mm -hmm. and they're young and they feel like they want to truly handle it. But I, I really get worried about how they're going to do. And I, and you don't know if they're going to get suicidal.
0: Yes, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Pete McMullen, who's the Suicide Prevention Coordinator at the VA, talking about working with very suicidal vets, uh, coming back from, from very traumatic experiences. Um, I, that's another question, for is just your own fear. You know, I know as a psychiatrist that working with someone very suicidal, I have to work with my own fear about whether they might die between right. now and the next time I see them. And how do you manage that?
1: Um, I guess it really just goes with the territory. If you really um, have a, if, you, if that's something that's really going to upset, if I was going to get really upset about that, it would be hard for me to do this job. There are some mental health providers, I think, who would shy away from this job they think would be the worst job in the world. So I can, I can feel bad about what I do if I messed up. That would hurt me the most if I really had an opportunity to do something, and for some reason I did not do what I needed to do, Um, and I knew better. That would be hard for me to kind of go through. Um, So I try to really focus on whether I'm doing the right thing at the time. I'm sorry, you know, you have to go to the hospital. I'm calling the police on you. You know, I need to do these things. And if I feel like I'm doing the right thing, and yet they were to complete a suicide, at least I know I did what we needed to try to do.
0: It feels like, I mean, that sounds so good, but it's easier said than done, too, right? It is. Because if someone actually dies, how can you not question yourself?
1: It does, and that's where I'll probably go for a run or do something like that and deal with the stress that way. Um, Yeah. I have support from my wife, you know, at home, so that's really helpful to have. Yeah. Um, And I have a supportive working environment. Um, Some places can be more judgmental than others. I'm very fortunate where I'm at now in the VA that, it's, it's, I find it to be very supportive in terms of what we're trying to do.
0: The sense I get from you is that there's a real recognition now that this is a real problem and that you have some power to make things happen because there's recognition. Like, this is real. We need to respond quickly. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm I'm sure is very reassuring. It is. Um, I want to ask a little bit about, you know, I know you've worked as a family therapist. What, what do you advise for families? You know, if, if, if I was a family member and my husband was coming back or I was a mother and my son was coming back, are there things that you can help families n- know to look for or to expect or ways to support their family member when they come back?
1: It's kind of recognizing what the warning signs about a suicide. Um, if, it's, if they are going through a lot of loss, if they've lost a relationship, they've lost a job, they're having financial issues, that can be one sign. If they have PTSD, that's certainly another. If they have traumatic brain injury, in other words, if they were around an IED explosion and cognitively they're not the same person they used to be, that's another area to be concerned about when it comes to suicide. If they start talking about suicide, distancing from the family, they're acting really erratic, the family should really recognize that this is not something that's just going to go away. This is not just a bad time or he's going to get through this. They really need to take the action and convince the person to get care or call the VA. And let me know what's going on. Let us know what's going on so that we can actually try to pull that person in more directly.
0: Now, when you say call the VA, you know, I I wouldn't know where to begin. How do you call the VA? Who do you call?
1: You call the VA and you call uh, area code 207-623-8411. That's the main number for Togus. Say that number again. 623-8411. Okay. That's the number to Togus. And you um, hit the operator, hit O, and ask to speak to somebody in the mental health clinic. If it's after hours on the weekends, you ask to speak somebody in the emergency department. And then we have our mental health staff around who are very familiar with how to work with somebody who's going through this. And we take information from the family members, and you know, then we'll take it from there. We'll try to contact and pull that veteran in.
0: So it feels really helpful to hear this. There's concrete things a family can look for and do if they get really worried. What about even before that? I mean, are there things that families can do to understand what... Their loved one is going to be going through about how hard an adjustment it's going to be. You know, you were speaking before about a sense of isolation, not belonging, not being able to share their experience. How can the family know how to navigate that with somebody?
1: I think the way to navigate it is to just continue to offer the support. It makes a huge difference. Family members are very, very important to anybody coming back because of just what kind of support are they getting when they come back it's very hard for an alienated 24 year old who's never had a good relationship with his parents who really has been on his own since he's 18. That is very tough. You know, if they have one brother or someone in the family is close to them, that's great to have that. They want to know that they're not monsters. They want to know that they're still accepted. Um, you, if a family member convinces them, this is not normal. This is not just, I really need you to do this for me. I need you to get to a mental health provider because you're scaring me and I'm really worried about you and I'm taking this seriously. So don't, underestimate if if it's a family member, don't underestimate the influence you have on this person. You can be very helpful in getting them into the care when they feel like, Hey, I want to be on my own two feet.
0: Yeah. It feels helpful to hear. You know, I'm thinking about the issues that, um, you're talking about, you know, the, the challenge of helping someone actually get to the point where they feel safe enough to talk about what really happened Mm -hmm. and how different they feel from people who haven't gone through it. And, um, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking it's like the experience of maybe losing someone right next to you or the experience of participating in killing another human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, what have you found as, as a therapist helps people when they, if they do have the courage to really talk to you about it? You said something about I help them see it in a different way. Tell me what you meant by that.
1: There can be a lot of distortions in terms of what they're coming back with. They can think about an event in a very specific way and find ways to sort of feel that they were responsible in ways that from a logical point of view, they weren't. They were in a different, I mean, from our objective point of view, it doesn't look that way at all. So you were in a uh, a war environment. This is what happened that night. These are the decisions you made. And this is how it ended. Back it up. How? Yes, if you knew this was going to happen, you would have done B instead of A. But you didn't. And so where did you make, you tell me, where did you make the mistake? You know, where did you really deserve that? You're acting like you shot the person yourself, you know, and yet you didn't. So I have them sort of look at it from different kind of points of view that, with that. Now, again, the work with getting into trauma can be very different for different therapists. The PTSD program that we have really works first at cognitive behavioral issues. doesn't get into individual trauma work to, at the beginning. It really is a matter of looking at how they can change their thinking, without getting into specific um, traumas, because that can be tough. You need a fair amount of trust or safety before you can really do that work. Um, But once they get to that level of work, that's one way of how I can, that's how I kind of work with my clients in doing that work.
0: So really what you're saying is the enormous suffering caused by self-blame. Yeah. By deep self-judgment.
1: It can be. And that's um, a big part of the suicide-related issues in terms of I don't have a good reason to live anymore. I don't have value enough to live um, and those kind of things can come up in their mind.
0: So maybe that's, you know, I'm just thinking about what we as the community of, uh, you know, Americans receiving these people home. It, it, may, it reminds me of sort of the Vietnam era where the the feeling was, you know, that people were being blamed for having committed atrocities and they were ashamed to have been part of it. And we've mm. learned a lot, I think, as a country. That,
1: that's, we've learned a lot, yeah.
0: Um, but do you think that the reception is... is do, Do the young men and women who are doing this, do you think they receive the kind of honor that they need when they come back?
1: It's dramatically different from Vietnam. To compare those two would really be night and day because um, Vietnam was just itself such a learning curve. And and in some ways of that, uh, such a mistake for us as a country. No one is blaming the soldiers coming back. I I find, I mean, it's extremely rare. Except themselves, it sounds like um around them there's i mean they go to a restaurant you know hey if they go to and they find out that they're, they're wearing their uniform those kind of things so they get free dinners and stuff like that so it's a good response The general public.
0: So we're going to have to end, Pete, but I want to ask you if someone listening tonight is struggling with feeling suicidal themselves or knows someone that they worry is suicidal, what is a number? You gave us the number for the VA, which was 623 8411. Right. But is there a suicide hotline also that you'd recommend?
1: There is. There's one specific to veterans. It's connected to the national hotline. It's 1 800 273 8255. Uh, Veterans should hit one right off the bat and they'll be connected to the VA call center.
0: Tell me that number one more time.
1: 1-800-273-8255.
0: Pete McMullen, thank you so much for being my guest at Safe Space.
1: Very appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: So I've been talking to Pete McMullen, the Suicide Prevention Coordinator here in Maine for the VA. We've been talking about suicide among returning vets. Um, if next, next week I'll be also continuing the series about suicide. If you have a request or a suggestion for a future topic... Please email me at at drannwmpg@gmail.com. I want to thank especially Jen Hodson for doing the sound tonight, Neil McKenty for being my consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.